Well, tonight, it seems like forever since we've been in the book of Revelation. It's been three studies and Christmas and New Year's and and the Katina's out. And so turn in your Bibles to the 11th chapter of the book of Revelation, Revelation 11. Just two verses tonight, and these two verses are so important for our understanding of where we are in the last days. Because they describe something that is coming. And that something that's coming is a temple. And that temple needs to be on the temple mount. And the temple mount is in one place. That one place is Jerusalem. And if you travel there today, there's no temple on the temple mount. And so as the Apostle John writes, as the Holy Spirit inspires... He turns his attention to another parenthetical section here as we're kind of taking a break in the trumpet and the bowl judgments. Uh, Before we finish those, uh, he begins to have this little vision uh, that's offered and it's something that we look at and we're kind of scratching our heads a little bit when we look at the world around us today. Something that as we attempt to understand it, uh, it's so perplexing that many today just simply say it cannot happen. And there are many today that say it would simply need to be spiritualized. And so they attempt to spiritualize all of this chapter and much of the book of Revelation in general. But if you travel to Jerusalem today and you go to the Temple Mount, many people don't realize that Jerusalem itself sits at about 2,500 feet in elevation And the Temple Mount is bounded by two valleys, Hinnom Valley, Kadron Valley. And as you look at that area of the world today, uh, there's nothing more prevalent in the world's uh, geopolitical climate than that little tiny 37-acre platform called the Temple Mount. And so tonight, the coming temple... Let's ask the Lord to speak as we read just two verses. Father, we are again gathered together. Lord, almost expectant uh, that you could pop through the clouds at any moment, Jesus, and return for your church to gather us up that we would meet you in the air. Your word is clear on so many of these details of what will be uh, the very final days of mankind's time here on this earth. And this is an important topic. We pray that God you would speak to us, that you'd reveal to us from heaven how the truth of your word. And we pray that you'd bless us as we study, make these things again afresh and new and alive for us, that we might get excited about the days, the times that we live. Lord, the season is upon us uh, when the Son of Man may well return. And so God, we bless you, we praise you, Speak to us, we now pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 here in Revelation 11. And then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And so you can see there's a little bit of a transportation issue here. Uh, John is on the island of Patmos. He's in a cave on that island. uh, Some 500 miles or so north in the midst of the Aegean Sea. Uh, And now he's going to be given a rod and he's going to take and and measure uh, the temple of God. And the angel stood saying, Arise and measure the temple of God, the altar and those who worship there. 
And so he's given a task, if you will. And it appears in the midst of that task uh, that the Holy Spirit speaking to him uh, gives him some very special instructions. Because at the time that the temple uh, was first instituted, it was really called the tabernacle. And the tabernacle of the meeting was in fact a tent. It was a portable temple. That tabernacle traveled with the children of Israel everywhere they went during the wilderness wanderings. And and as they wandered through the wilderness, they would take that tabernacle everywhere. And in it were all the basic component parts that would be in both of the two previous temples that have existed on the Temple Mount. It had a holy of holies, that place wherein the Ark of the Covenant dwelled. There between the cherubim, the God himself would meet with them. The holy place being the place outside of that. That was the area in which stood the table of showbread, the altar of incense, and the giant menorah. That was a place where all of the priests could go. But that holy of holies was a place that only the high priest could go. And the high priest could go there exactly on one day a year. And that was the day of Yom Kippur. And so he would go, and after having offered first a sacrifice for himself, he would then offer a sacrifice for the sins of the entire nation of Israel. And so it is that temple that became essential to the Jewish people for the forgiveness of their sins. And so throughout the year, the Jewish people waited for the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, for their sins to be finally dealt with for that year. And all throughout the year, they were in essence stored up. They would make personal offerings. They would say prayers asking for forgiveness. But there was a work that happened in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, just outside of the holy place, in the very most holy place in the temple, that could only happen in the temple. That temple is no longer there. And yet there are Hebrew people. They have a sacrificial system that they believe uh, is the only way for their sins to be assuaged. Their guilt to be erased. And so as Jewish people worship today, they worship based on believing that one day that temple is going to be built and they are waiting for that next day that Yom Kippur is celebrated in the temple so that their sins can be dealt with. They have been doing that for 2,000 years. The coming temple is very important, especially to the Hebrew people. Verse 2, but leave out the court which is outside the temple. We're explained what that is in the next portion of the second verse, but it is the court of the Gentiles. It is the place where the Gentiles, who were considered unclean, could still gather outside of, in essence, the area of God's favor, and they would be in the court of the Gentiles, and in the court of the Gentiles... They, they could at least be somewhere close to where God was having his transactional work done with the Hebrew people, with the Jewish people, with those who understood that there was one God. 
And so that outer court, which was considered part of the temple compound, but not part of the building, the temple itself, was to be left out. Do not measure it. And here's why. It's been given to the Gentiles. Now if, as we believe it is true, the church is going to be taken home via the rapture, you're not really going to need a court of the Gentiles, are you? Because there's only going to be a couple of different types of people on the earth. been given to the Gentiles and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months if you know anything about 42 months that's exactly three and a half years amen and so this incredible picture the temple mount itself becomes the focus for our time tonight and as you think on the temple mount it's important for you to understand the, this tiny compound it is it is extremely small uh, it's actually a trapezoid. If you look at it, the view that you have before you is looking uh, really from mostly the south, but slightly from the east. Uh, and so uh, to my left in that picture, to your right in that picture as you're staring at it, uh, you, you have the Kidron Valley. The midst of that valley would be running up along the eastern side of the Temple Mount. The opposite side would obviously be the western side. You're looking at the south side. Uh, the other end would be the north side. The side that you're looking at is the shortest of those two sides. It's only about 900 feet long. Uh, as you look at the western side, that's the longest side. Uh, it's approximately 1,650 feet long. Uh, the other end is about 1,000 feet long. And the, the east side, somewhere around 1,500 feet. And so it's a tiny area. It's 37 acres. That's it. We think of this, you know, it, it's so prominent in Scripture. Jesus taught on the Temple Mount. You have all of these things that happened in the temple itself. So much of the Jewish people's history uh, is recorded, in essence, looking forward to this, this area of the world. And yet as you look at it today, uh, you're not going to see that. It's in Jerusalem. It's the model of Herod's temple. And Herod's temple is said to be one of the most magnificent buildings in the world. Uh, you, that's not on the temple mount right now. All that you see on the temple mount when you look at it are three mosques. And those three mosques represent uh, the antithesis, if you will, of Judaism. Though there are three monotheistic religions, in other words, religions that believe that there is but one God, mono meaning singular, theo, theism meaning God, there's only three of them. They're biblical Christianity, of which we are a part, Judaism, and Islam. All three declare that that's a holy site. It is, in fact, Islam that controls the Temple Mount. And so the dome that we're so familiar with is the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the one on the south end, which is the side closest to you. Uh, there, as you, as you begin to think on these things, uh, the Dome of the Rock, excuse me, is the gold one. The Al-Aqsa is the one on the south end. And then the Dome of the Chain is one that you can barely see. It's on the, on the western side. 
And so these three mosques present quite a problem if you're going to build a temple, a temple on the Temple Mount. Because that building needs to go somewhere. And the way you're looking at it, you would be looking directly at it from the north towards the south. And so the building that you see on, in the distance of that uh, photograph there, that model happens to be uh, at the Israel National Museum. It's an entire compound, the whole city of ancient Jerusalem laid out uh, in a full-scale model. Uh, you are looking at the building behind it, that colonnaded building, 152 columns on it. That is the Sanhedrin. That is where the Apostle Paul uh, would have met with the religious leadership and, and would have decided the fate of Stephen. Right now, that's a pile of rubble. There's nothing there. As you look at the Temple Mount today, you can't really quite see them, but there are 11 gates that enter into or on top of or could enter into uh, the temple compound, the temple area itself, the temple mount as we know it. There are 11 of them. Guess how many of them are allowed for access for the Hebrew people? Exactly one. The other 10 are in essence for Gentiles such as us occasionally or Muslims. And so it's a contentious place. The daily prayer of faithful Jews has been, may it be acceptable to you, O eternal God, our God, the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that the sanctuary may be rebuilt in our days and our portion assigned to us and that that, thy law would be taught and there would be there with thee to serve the reverence as it was in the bygone days. So the Hebrew people waiting for that temple to be back on the Temple Mount. When Israel was founded, May 14th of 1948, as they came back into the land, as the end of the Palestinian mandate, the Balfour mandate ends, the Hebrew people come back in and reestablish the land of Israel. In 1967, a war was fought during that war. Uh, the Jordanians at that time were controlling the Temple Mount. The Israeli, what we now call the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, took the entire city of Jerusalem. Uh, they liberated the entire city. And then promptly a day later, Prime Minister Moshe Dayan gave the Temple Mount back to Jordan. And so it has been under Muslim control uh, in essence since day one. Even though it is actually the capital, as far as the Jewish people are concerned, it is the capital of Israel. And yet our own federal government fails to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. We call Tel Aviv the capital of Israel. And yet the Jewish people say it is Jerusalem. That is the most holy place in all of Judaism. And as far as the Jews are concerned, the only portion that they have access to is what we call the Wailing Wall, or to them, the Western Wall. A Kotel. And so it is there that they offer prayers almost incessantly, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days out of the year. There's virtually no time that you can't go and find, uh, especially the Orthodox Jewish people praying at the Western Wall. 
crying out for the peace of Jerusalem, that it would be returned to them. As we move on, as we get into this chapter, we we find this kind of perplexing. Because it almost seems to be an impossibility when you think of the ramifications of what is going on in that area. Many, including some tremendous theologians, have just said there's just no way that this can possibly ever happen. We'll dig into a little bit of the history of it tonight. In fact, Dr. Alfred, who's one of the, Alford, who's great theologian, says this is one of the most difficult verses in all the apocalypse. And the main reason it's so difficult is that to take this literally would mean war in the region almost constantly. And that is exactly what Mahmoud Abbas said just a week ago as they continue to deny the Jewish people the ability to even go up and pray on the Temple Mount. If you're a Hebrew and you're caught praying in Hebrew on the Temple Mount, the Temple Mount police will make sure that you either leave or they'll make you leave by force. Dr. Leon Morris in his commentary on this book, Book of Revelation, falls into this category of those who believe that God has no purpose for the Jewish people. That in fact he's done with them. They had their chance. And though many do not take it to the extreme. The extreme is it was in fact the Jewish people responsible for Jesus' death. And thereby God's done with them. And of course we do not believe that. I believe that Jeff Gill was the reason that Jesus Christ was crucified. I put Jesus on the cross. It was my sin that caused him to be nailed there. He died for me. It was no more Caiaphas' fault or those who cried out in the crowd, we have no king but Caesar. It was no more their fault than mine. Jesus Christ came to this earth for the express purpose to give his life a ransom for many. And so scripture is replete and full with promises that were made to Israel that have not yet been fulfilled. Things that apply to them. Very unique things. And one of them is this temple. Those who believe in amillennialism, another long word but easy to understand, ah meaning not or none, against and millennia or millennialism meaning that there would be a thousand year or a thousand year reign of Christ we call it that final kingdom season when the Lord Jesus will come back at the second coming he will rule and reign on this earth we believe that it will be for a literal thousand years there are those that spiritualize that that in fact it will never happen And to any extent that it's going to be uh, thought of, we think of it spiritually. We just spiritualize it. God dwells in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Christ in us is our hope of glory. So the whole thing is spiritualized. There's no literal thousand-year reign. There's no literal temple. And, And as the Lord comes again, it will simply be to have his kingdom come and his will be done. Not to take his church home. And so this theology... 
spiritualizes these things. Dr. Leon Morris in his commentary on this important part of scripture. So it's important that we take this whole section symbolically. It's plain enough in, the ver- in verse 1 that it's symbolic. I don't personally see how it's plain at all that it's symbolic. But that's what he declares in his commentary. And most expositors, he goes on to say, take the witness of the holy city literally. Well, yeah, that's because it's a literal city and a literal temple. He said then that difficulties then multiply because John is saying that it's a spiritual temple, the church. And you can see where he begins to make it so that this is all about the church. And they will be preserved and then sealed. Remember we saw uh, the sealing of those 144,000. They believe that's the church. It's not the Jewish people. It's representative of the church. Then he goes on to say, though it will be subjugated to physical oppression as the Gentiles trample it. In other words, the church is going to be persecuted. There's a problem with that theology, and let me explain it to you as briefly as I can. When we get to chapter 13 in verse 7, it says there, and it was granted to him, that would be the Antichrist, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. I think my Bible's pretty clear about all the saints who are currently now living that we are in fact overcomers and shall not be overcome. In fact, Jesus himself said that I will establish upon myself, I will build my rock and uh, or make my church upon this rock, meaning himself, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so there is a contrast that's undeniable there and all authority was given to him over every tribe and tongue and nation and so there appears to be in chapter 13 coming up to us a time when those who were on this earth are actually going to be overcome by the antichrist and yet Jesus declared that the church is made out of overcomers who won't be overcome that is a pretty serious conundrum causes us some serious issues, as Jesus spoke in Matthew 16. Also negates all those promises that no weapon fashioned against us shall prosper, amen? That we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. And and yet somehow, uh, we're still going to be here and the devil's going to be able to overcome us via the Antichrist. I, I don't believe that that's even possible couple of words that are used there in chapter 13 and the one that's used in Matthew 16 as well. They're different words and, and it applies to this word overcome and it's the Greek word nikau and that word simply means to prevail. In other words, the enemy's not going to win. Those saints are going to win. So what saints do you think it is that's being talked about here. Well, I think it's pretty clear. It's the tribulation saints. It's people who came to faith in Christ after the church is taken away because about us, we're going to be in heaven, but they're going to go through things that we're not going to go through. So I believe that a literal temple is going to be built and that the, will, the worship that's described here in verses 1 and 2 is, is going to be, in essence, it's going to be false worship because we know that anyone who names the name of Christ will be saved. And so he doesn't require for us to go into the temple and worship him that way. Uh, We worship him now in spirit and in truth, amen? You can worship him wherever you're at. 
You can have forgiveness of sin any moment, any time, anywhere, any place. There's no necessity for you to come to this church, any building, or any temple. And so this worship will be the worship that's prescribed for the Jewish people as they will come back. The Antichrist will allow that worship back in that literal temple uh, that will be built. And so we take it quite literally. And I, and I pray that as we think about this, uh, there, there is a plan for the Jewish people. It's why it's so important that we do not abandon Israel. God has a plan for them. And that plan includes us continuing to preach the gospel of Christ. Uh, there, there is a rabbinical movement right now where there are actually a number of very prominent rabbis in Israel that are calling for a revisiting of this whole thing called Jesus is the Messiah. Who is he? It's, it's kind of getting hard to explain given that Israel's only friend in the whole world is a bunch of Christians who happen to have a Messiah, uh, a King of Kings and a Lord of Lords who happens to fit all the parameters of the Hebrew Messiah. Amen? We are connected to the Jewish people in that way. We're going to be looking at the two false, the false witness that's going on here tonight just a little bit. But there are going to be two witnesses that are going to come on the scene that we'll look at next week that are this crazy couple of guys that are going to be killed for their faith and then be raised back from the dead. So tonight, a little bit of temple history. I want you to think back on these things. And if you've got to keep in mind that, that picture as we run through some of this, because it's important for you to understand that God has continually allowed a witness uh, in that place. That first temple constructed during the reign of Solomon uh, it was begun, in essence, uh, started, if you will, the construction project got off the ground uh, almost a thousand years B.C. About 953 B.C., Solomon starts this first temple. It's dedicated by him, took seven years to build. Uh, during the reign of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, the nation became divided. Uh, the Assyrians would come, then the Babylonians would come, and that temple would be destroyed. And so, because they had no godly king in 722 B.C., uh, there all kinds of catastrophe happens. And, and then again in the final siege that's recorded in essence uh, by the prophet Isaiah and then is picked up in the story of Daniel and, and then also Nehemiah, the, the temple is destroyed, the gates of the city are burned. That city would have been substantially smaller than the walls that you see today. The walls that you see today are primarily uh, from, the, from the Muslim uh, rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. That began, of course, in the mid-600s. Uh, it, it would continue for about 800 years. The walls would be extended and expanded, and, and the temple compound uh, enlarged. But there were, there were two temples that were built by the Hebrew people, and it would be uh, this... this temple that was the first one destroyed that when you looked at it you would just ah, I can't even believe how beautiful this thing was but as the first one was destroyed there would be the next one would come and during that time uh, the second temple would be built and so this is the one that's described in the book of Ezra uh, there in the sixth chapter 
uh, described for us in, in some detail, but Ezra says it this way in Ezra chapter 3 uh, initially, and he, he begins by saying, excuse me, let's go to chapter 6 first, in Ezra 6 verse 15, now the temple was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which was the sixth year of the reign of King Darius, uh, who is the Mede, the Persian, we know him from uh, the story of Daniel as well, and then the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the rest of the descendants of the captivity. Of course, that was the captivity of Daniel, uh, that, that you know, the children were taken away into Babylon, uh, celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. The chapter 6 gives us uh, the picture of how low budget this construction project actually was, because they were used to the glory of Solomon's temple. That one had been erased it, 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 this, so this is now kind of like, you know, what they imagined and envisioned and remembered and what was told to them by their forefathers paled in comparison. And so Ezra uh, chapter 3 uh, tells us this, but many priests and Levites and the heads of their father's houses, old men who had seen the first temple, that would have been Solomon's temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of the temple was laid before their eyes. And yet many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout and the sound was heard afar off. So those who witnessed the glory of the first temple by the time the second one was rebuilt after they'd been taken captivity, taken into captivity, were, were totally bummed. They're like, I can't even believe we've been reduced to this. Interestingly enough, when you travel to Jerusalem today, there are the remains of both of these temples. You, you can see very visibly the Herodian stones, which we're going to get to next, and you can see very visibly this old funky Temple Mount wall that surrounded what would be called David's city or the city of Zion, which would have been significantly further south from the modern walls that exist today. And if you travel, you can see where uh, each of the various periods, the time of Hezekiah was, is visible, uh, certainly the time of Ezra and Nehemiah is visible. And so all of these various construction projects are very well recorded in the archaeology uh, of Jerusalem to this day. In 167 BC, this temple, the second temple, was a temple that was uh, desecrated by the Seleucid ruler Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, or Antiochus the the Fourth. Uh, he was a Macedonian Greek, uh, and as a Macedonian Greek, uh, basically they were the rulers of the world at the time. They would they would surrender eventually to the Roman Empire, but at that time, uh, they kind of held everything. Uh, in, in the way that they wanted. And it was this guy that so many people confuse in a spiritualization of this whole temple situation because he did go in and desecrate the second temple. And in the desecration of that temple, he slaughtered a pig to Zeus on the altar in the Holy of Holies. The temple was desecrated and it was unfit. And in fact, Hanukkah is the celebration of the relighting of the menorah after the desecration of the temple. And so that is how uh, the, the Jewish people would understand this, this incredible event uh, that, that would just ruin any ability they had to carry out all of the wonderful symbolic uh, practices that they had known from the time of the wilderness wandering and, and had participated in for 1,500 years. 
gone. Then we would have Herod the Great come on the scene. Herod the Great, when you travel uh, to the land of Israel today, uh, you can see many of his construction projects. He was an amazing uh, builder, but he's an interesting guy. He was from the Edomite stock, the stock of Esau. Uh, he was named Herod the Great. He was actually appointed king uh, by the Romans over the land that is now called uh, Israel, but it was then Palestine as well. So over the land of Palestine, he was uh, announced to be the king. Of course, he would not be accepted as king uh, by the Hebrew people. Uh, He would be fought, in essence, in that regard. There would be numerous revolts that would come up. They would always be put down. But he was basically uh, fairly kind to the Jewish people. And so to build up his own image, he allowed for not only the expansion of this funky, run-down second temple, but he made it grander than many people would say it was even grander than Solomon's temple itself. And so he builds onto what was this horrible construction project and builds, in essence, the foundations of what we call the Western Wall today or the Wailing Wall. Those stones that exist today were from the time of Herod. So those 11 in some spots, 13 in other spots, rows of stones that exist, the reason the Jewish people worship there is they are the only remnants of the original Temple Mount that exists today. That's why that little tiny section of the Western Wall, just a couple hundred feet long, that's the only place in all of Jerusalem that the Hebrew people believe is still a place where they can come and touch uh, or be as close as they possibly can uh, to, to where the actual temple used to stand. And in fact, if you travel today, there's a tour that takes you underground into the Western Wall tunnels and underneath Uh, inside of there you can see some of the results of this brilliant builder now this guy was was only five feet tall or so but he used very 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 large stones and in fact there is one stone in the western wall tunnels uh, that's about 45 feet in length it's 13 and a half meters uh, in length about 13 feet wide it weighs about 570 tons do some quick math that's that's a whole bunch of weight It is believed to be the largest stone ever moved in the history of mankind without machinery. Gigantic. And yet, as big as that was, that building project would be finished and within seven years, it would be destroyed exactly as Jesus said. In fact, Jesus, as he is recorded in Mark's gospel in chapter 13, Jesus went out to the temple. One of the disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. He would have been looking at Herod's temple. So these huge stones, and and imagine something that weighs 1.14 million pounds. 1.14 million, that's going to stand there a while. And said, look at these massive stones. See the buildings that are there? And Jesus answered and said to him, do you see these great buildings? Jesus is looking at Herod's temple. Not one 
stone shall be left on top of one another. They will be cast down. Jesus says some very specific things in that. Because from the Temple Mount into the Kidron, into the Hinnom Valley, is down. And when you travel there today, what you find at the base of the wall that's still left of Herod's stones are the stones from the upper level where the temple used to be, and it is down. But you don't find any temple. It's not there. And so this temple, which will be the third temple, the prophet Ezekiel declares that there will be a fourth temple that will be built. That fourth temple will come during the millennial reign. But the third temple, in order for it to be measured... In order for it to be there, in order for the Antichrist to allow the Jewish people to worship in it, it's got to be built. So Revelation 11.1, 1, then I was given a reed, a measuring rod. Uh, that word there, kalamos in the Greek, is a, is a staff about nine to ten and a half feet long. He's given this measuring rod to go measure the temple of God. And he says, measure the altar And those who worship there. And the reason he's measuring those who worship there is because he's given the instruction to leave out the outer courts, the the courts of the Gentile. And so he goes out and he's, he's told to measure the temple. It's interesting because there are two words translated temple in your Bible. Uh, One is the Greek word naos, and the Greek word naos is only the building itself. That is the one that John uses. He says, measure the naos of God. That would have been the holy place and the holy of holies. So he says, measure the building itself, but don't measure the courts that are outside. And so as he's told to do that, he could have used the Greek word hieron, and that would have included the whole structure. That would have been the courts of the Gentile, the court of the women. It would have been the building that houses the Sanhedrin. It would have been all of it. And so he's saying, look, I I want you to measure the naos, the, the dwelling place of God, the place where the priests did their business. Bottom line is, is no matter how many good deeds you do, you can't erase your own sin, right? And so for the Hebrew people, the naos is where their sins got erased. The high priest would go in, he would go to the table of showbread representing all of the tribes of Israel. There the, the loaves would be stacked They would represent the entirety of the Hebrew people. And then he would go to the altar of incense and he would offer up prayers for himself, for his own family, for the people before he would go in. While he's staring at the the light that represented uh, the light of God. That would be the light that would be inside of that place. And then before that veil was separated, before he went in, he would tie a scarlet cord around his ankle. And there on the hem of his garment, on the priestly garments, were the bells and the pomegranates. And those bells and pomegranates would clang together. And they were there for a very specific reason. Because if the high priest went in and he he went into the Holy of Holies and he himself were unclean, he would be struck dead by God. And so if the priests who were attending in the holy place, not the Holy of Holies, but the holy place, were to hear silence they would know they needed to grab that cord and pull his dead body back from the presence of the Lord for they themselves could not go in. In other words, this was serious business. This is where God forgave sin. 
Praise God that the serious business of God forgiving sin was done on Calvary's cross. Amen? That's who we worship. Amen? So the Hebrew people are still in that place of believing they need that temple for the forgiveness of sin. It's a must. It cannot happen without it. And so figuratively, symbolically, they have been waiting for this temple to get rebuilt. So imagine when the Antichrist comes on the scene. Check this out. Third temple is going to be built. The Antichrist is going to rise up. He's going to come. Daniel chapter 9 verse 27. Then he, that is the Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. That would be seven years in that context. But in the middle of that week, that would be three and a half years, he shall bring an end to the, notice these two things, the sacrifice and the offering. So Daniel is referring to a temple that exists on the Temple Mount during the time of the Antichrist. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined and it is poured out upon the desolate. The word for sacrifice that Daniel uses in the Hebrew, Hebrew word is zebah, and it means the bloody sacrifice. It was the place where the animal was slaughtered, its life was lost, it was the offering for the atonement of sin. So the Antichrist is going to allow the offering for the atonement of sin. There's exactly one place in the whole world that can happen. That's in the temple on the temple mount. The word offering is the, is the mina, which speaks of the grain sacrifice. So all these things are pictures of what happened in the naos. So what is John told to do? Go measure the naos. Both Paul and Jesus speak to the same issue. And as they speak to this issue, the New Testament speaks of this third temple. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, Let no one deceive you by any means. For that day, what day? The last day. The final days. The very last days. The tribulation of days. For that day will not come. The day that... Right now, the world is still waiting for, unless a falling away comes first, and unless there's an apostasy, unless the church becomes ineffective. It's why when we look at the world today and we see so much of the church falling away from the sanctity of life, falling away from the sanctity of marriage, falling away from the truth of God's word, falling away from church itself, falling away from biblical inerrancy, Falling away. The church doesn't stand for anything anymore. It might as well be a social organization. These things can't happen until that happens. And then the man of sin. Again, another reference to the Antichrist and his rise. A man of sin is revealed. The son of perdition. Notice it doesn't say the man of perdition. It says the son of perdition. In other words, he's going to have the root of that perditious uh, attitude towards the world. He won't be the devil himself, but he's going to be a representation, a very close representation, so much so that he'll be considered a son of the devil, the Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God 
or all that's worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple, showing himself to be God. And so the Antichrist will actually defile the third temple, the one that's not there. That spirit is alive in the the world today. Satan's desire has always been to be worshipped. One day he's going to demand it. He sets himself against the true God. And during those very last days, Jesus spoke in Matthew 24. If you want to turn there, verse 15, it begins this way. And therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, when you see the Antichrist go into the temple and demand to be worshipped, the temple which today is not there, the reason that this is the coming temple, Jesus speaks of that time. And notice he qualifies it by saying it is spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Jesus in 32 AD quotes from Daniel the prophet who wrote about this coming lawless one who would demand to be worshipped in the temple which had not yet happened and Antiochus Epiphanes had come some 200 years earlier so it had to be after that time because Jesus says when you see it happen not you have seen it happen, it already happened you know, 200 years ago in 167 BC. It didn't happen then because it's still coming today. When you see that abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. In order for you to stand in the holy place there has to be one. And he goes on to give very specific instructions on what to physically do. Because I don't know how you spiritually flee into the mountains of Judea. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down or take anything out of his house. It doesn't sound too spiritual to me. That sounds like a warning. And let him who is in the field not go back and get his clothes. Again, I don't know how you spiritualize what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, don't go after your stuff. But woe to those who are pregnant. I don't know how you spiritualize that. That's kind of a, you either are or you are not pregnant, okay? To those who are nursing babies. Again, don't know how you, don't or, or, or how do you do that spiritually? Well, I'm spiritually nursing my children right now. I, I, don't, I don't think so, and especially in light of the language that's used here. And pray that your flight, your travel, your journey may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation. Jesus says it himself. For at that time, It had to have been a time that was after the temple was destroyed, but yet the temple was rebuilt because the Antichrist is going to go into that temple and demand to be worshipped. He's going to defile that temple. Such has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor shall ever be. And unless those days are shortened, no flesh would survive. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Jesus says the Antichrist will rise, he will demand to be worshipped in that temple that at this current point in time does not exist. A couple of things pop up for us 
And of course, one of them is there's a giant mosque in the middle of the Temple Mount right now. When you look at it, you say, well, that's not... When you look at the size of the naos, there's a couple of things that could be done that would allow for that to happen. The Dome of the Rock, one of the, one of the theories that's been floated around for about the last 10 years is you could easily fit what is the naos, the building of God, uh, easily to the north side. And in fact, when you take that tour that goes underneath, uh, what are actually underneath some houses that exist above them, along the western wall, and you enter into the tunnels that are there, there actually is walled up the entrance to Solomon's stables, tunnels, and it is directly at the end of those tunnels that you find what is supposed to be uh, the entrance to the, the niche that would have held the Ark of the Covenant. That is to the north side of the Dome of the Rock. So one of the things that could happen is the Jewish people could begin to build the temple and leave the the Dome of the Rock, the Al-Aqsa, and the Dome of the Tablets, by the way. It's called the Dome of the Chain now, but originally its name was the Dome of the Tablets. But the Dome of the Tablets, maybe it got its name from the Ark of the Covenant and the Tablets of God, which are in the Ark of the Covenant. One of the theories. You see, that outer court is being left outside. Don't measure it. It's been given to the Gentiles. Back in 1989 in Time Magazine, October 16th issue, the headline was The Time of the New Temple. The article is quoted, Should there be any effort to build a temple on the Temple Mount? At the merest hint of the rebuilding of the temple, if it's considered an outrage by the prophet's followers, that would be those who are Muslim who in the words of an official at Al-Aqsa, we will defend the Islamic holy places to the very last drop of our blood. That is almost word for word what Mahmoud Abbas said last week. You may have remembered a little organization called the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade. Uh, They were associated with the Temple Mount and protecting it from Jewish people traveling to the Temple Mount. And yet, the Jews absolutely are seeking to rebuild that third temple. If you travel today, you have the Temple Mount Faithful, you have the Temple Institute, uh, you have all kinds of things going on. Uh, you, you have a, a number of people that are, are saying, look, we, we could rebuild this right now. In fact, they have actually cut the cornerstones, and every once in a while, they actually put them on a flatbed truck and drive them around Jerusalem just to make everybody upset. You can go and visit all of the temple implements. But as you look at the Dome of the Rock Mosque, it's very interesting to me the inscriptions that are in Arabic that travel around. There's some tiles on the top of the, the, the facade of the Dome of the Rock Mosque. And let me give you some of the inscriptions there because there's about 734 feet of them in total. Uh, When you look at the inscriptions, you can very definitely tell that they have a problem with the name of Jesus. On the south wall, it says, there is no God but Allah alone, and he has no co-partner. On the southeast wall, Connie and I were standing there a couple of years ago, and as you you look at these, you know, you kind of almost get a little bit creeped out being that close to it. It says, the Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, is but a messenger of Allah. And his word which he cast upon Mary and a spirit from him. In other words, basically, Jesus talked Mary into being whoever she was. 
shall believe only in Allah and of his messenger, but do not say three. In other words, a reference to the Trinity. And it will be better for you, for Allah is only one God, and far be it from his glory that he should have a son. The north and the northwest wall. Praise be to Allah, who has not taken unto himself a son, and has no partner in sovereignty, nor has he any protector on account of weakness. In other words, there's something about the name of Jesus. There is a temple coming to the Temple Mount. The Washington Post back in 1967, just a little bit after uh, it was looking like there was a a war that was going to break out, but the war had not yet broken out. The advertisement was in the back section uh, of the of the wall of the Washington Post and said to all pe- persons of the Jewish faith from all over the world, a project to rebuild the temple of God in Israel is now being started with divine guidance and with help. The temple will be completed. How close are we? Might be getting pretty close. Could be almost any time. There are two Talmudic schools, schools that teach the the Talmud uh, that are located near the Western Wall. There's usually two, three hundred students there. You can travel in the little cave as you go to the Western Wall Plaza to the left-hand side. As you enter in, that is a that is a school, and you'll see them bring out the Torah scrolls virtually every day. There are groups that are researching the family lines of the Jewish priests, searching back through the records. Uh, of Judaism, and of course the Nazis destroyed a, a vast majority of those records. One of the things that Hitler set out to do was to erase the, the memory of the Jewish people from the face of the earth. Uh, but they're searching those genealogical records. Uh, they've been busy making temple garments. When you travel to the Temple Institute, you'll see the copper wash basin. Uh, you'll see the, uh, the loom set up that's that's for the specific purpose of making the priestly garments. You'll see the the altar of incense. You can see the gold diadem, which has the name of the Lord in the middle of it. You'll see the breastplate with all the stones of the tribe of each tribe. The shofar, the incense spices, it's all there. I spent almost $22 million just making the implements for the temple. They have a four and a half ton marble cornerstone that's cut, it's ready to go. That list could go on and on. The words of Jesus were, and therefore when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, whoever reads these words, let him understand. You see, the only people that were allowed in the holy place were the priests. And yet Jesus was speaking to all the Jews. The Jews didn't go back into the land until 1948. So none of these things could have happened until they were established back into the land. God does want us to know, he does want us to understand these things, that that temple is going to be rebuilt. And quite frankly, the Dome of the Rock's not going to stop it. Uh, The Grand Mufti of Jerusalem is not going to stop it. 
The Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade's not going to stop it because our king's coming. Amen? So keep your eyes on Israel. Keep your eyes on Jerusalem. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. You want some interesting reading? Uh, All of these groups, the Temple Mount Society, Temple Mount Faithful, the Temple Institute, all have their own websites. Uh, I'm not vouching for everything that they say on there, but it is extremely interesting reading if you want to do some of your own research and find out what's going on. Matter of fact, you can go to the live cams and watch people praying at the Western Wall. So we're going to pray for the peace of Jerusalem and know that one day, after we're all out of here, I believe, there's going to be a very, very rapid construction project that's going to put a temple back on that temple mount. And in it, the Antichrist is going to demand to be worshipped. Remember that he comes as a bearer of peace the first three and a half years. And I believe one of the things that will be a signifier of his, of his peace treaty is that he's going to actually be in charge of, set up, maybe even put in place that temple so that the Jewish people can once again worship. Crazy times. God is good. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We, we pray for the Jewish people. Lord, we know that Paul, writing to his own people there in Romans 11, said that that blindness in part had come until the time of the Gentiles is complete. Lord, we know that one day that is going to come to a close. You're going to take your church home. And you then, Lord Jesus, will return once and for all to deal with sinful mankind as you, as you battle the world's armies at Armageddon. We pray that, Lord, we would just be busy in these last days. God, with that truth of the gospel, Lord, we recognize that you have a plan to seek and save that which is lost, and, and that includes the the Muslim people, Lord, that includes the Jewish people, that includes all who don't believe, Lord, that includes the Hindu peoples of the world, and Father, the indigenous peoples wandering all over the planet. Uh, there's only one name under heaven whereby men may be saved, and that is at the name of Jesus. And so, God, we want to speak that name everywhere we go. We want to be engaged in taking your gospel into this world. So, Lord, bless us with that opportunity, we pray. We ask you to watch over and keep us. Lord, guide us and direct us. And again, we just bring the Jewish people before your throne of grace, Lord. They are persecuted and they are in danger. And so, Lord, we know that your word says you will bless those who bless them. And so we bless Israel. We pray that you would work now according to your plan and pleasure. We ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.